0: The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful year round environmentally connected, low maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Minimizing diseases, reducing pests, improving soil fertility, and pollinator support are all determined by the plant combinations you choose in this episode 50 companion planning that works with jessica walliser we talk about the science-backed methods that will reward your decisions for 15 years jessica walliser hosted the award-winning radio show the organic gardeners an award-winning program on kdka radio in pittsburgh pennsylvania she is the editorial director of Quarto Publishing Group's gardening imprint, Cool Springs Press, and a former contributing editor for Organic Gardening Magazine. Jessica is the author of seven gardening books, including the Amazon bestseller, Good Bugs, Bad Bugs, Who's Who, What They Do, and How to Manage Them Organically. Also, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden, which earned a prestigious 2021 American Horticultural Society Book Award. The first edition book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to the Garden, A Natural Approach to Pest Control, which was awarded the American Horticultural Society's 2014 Book Award. It has just been re-released in an updated second edition. For over 12 years, Jessica wrote two weekly gardening columns for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and she's also the co-founder of the very popular garden website, SavvyGardening.com. Jessica received her degree in ornamental horticulture from the Pennsylvania State University and is the former owner of a 25-acre organic market farm. She has taught a diverse array of gardening topics for over 25 years. Jessica lives and gardens northwest of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with her husband and son, two cats, two hermit crabs, and billions and billions of very good bugs. Our conversation with Jessica Walliser right after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jessica, what is companion planting?
1: Well, companion planting is really a technique that's been around for generations. Most gardeners have probably heard about companion planting. It's essentially partnering two or more plants together to achieve a benefit. A lot of people often think of that benefit as being pest control, but actually companion planting can have a lot of other benefits. It can lead to improved soil. It can lead to disease management. It can lead to enhanced biological control. In other words, a lot more good bugs in your garden. It can lead to improved pollination. It's really a lot of reasons why you would want a companion plant. Sort of the old school variety of companion planting, so to speak, which is what plant loves which other plant. There's not a lot of science behind that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write plant partners, because I really wanted to compile the research that actually does exist out there about companion planting and put that into a reference where you can choose plant partners that you actually know are going to be an effective way to achieve that benefit. So that's sort of companion planting in a nutshell.
0: How does that impact the garden?
1: It can impact the garden in some really cool ways, actually. I think probably the primary way that it does is it creates a polyculture. And polyculture is the, the contrast to a monoculture, a monoculture where you have just rows and rows of cabbage or rows and rows of corn or whatever an individual crop is, where a polyculture is an environment where you have lots of different plant diversity, lots of different plants growing together. That is where all of the benefits come in, right? Because there's a principle in science is diversity equals stability. So when you have a greater diversity of plant materials, you have then as a result, a greater diversity of all the animals and insects and mammals and all birds and all those things that live in your garden and also the soil life, you have a greater diversity of that. And therefore it leads to a more stable garden environment that's less likely to have issues with pests and other negative effects because you you have all the positives of that diversity. So I think interplanting is just one way that you can create that polyculture and get that biodiversity into the garden.
0: When did you start paying attention to the relationships going on in the garden?
1: I would say it was probably when I read the term wood wide web, which there's been some articles on social media about trees in the forest are all connected to each other through this fungal network that's under the ground that allows them to send messages to each other. It helps them acquire nutrients and acquire water water goes from the roots of one tree to the roots of the other tree. And I thought, well, geez, that's really, really amazing. And the science behind that is amazing. And so I wondered, does that also happen with plants in my garden or is it just the trees in the forest? What I discovered is that, yeah, many of the plants that grow in our vegetable gardens and our ornamental gardens have these relationships. And sometimes it's with several species of these soil dwelling fungi. They have these relationships that allow them to do all of those things. I thought, okay, well, if they're connecting, and relating to each other in that way, then in what other ways are they influencing and impacting the way their neighbors grow? Then it just sort of blossomed from there.
0: How did that change your approach to gardening?
1: Since I wrote my previous book, which is Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, that's where I really sort of stopped gardening for myself. And I started gardening for all of the other critters that share the garden with me. So I didn't necessarily think about, oh, I like this plant, so I'm going to include it in my garden. Now I think, ooh, yeah, I like that plant, but who else is it going to help? Who is it going to serve? What role is it going to play in the ecosystem of my garden? And so I'm making plant choices based on that instead of just basing it on things that appeal to me. So that definitely changed the way that I garden, mostly in terms of how I can enhance the number of pest eating beneficial insects that come to my garden. As I started researching for plant partners, I've learned that that same biodiversity that I'm creating and polyculture that I'm creating in my garden has all of these other benefits as well. That was really exciting. And then it just kind of snowballed from there.
0: Did that start as early as your organic farming days?
1: There was a spark for sure. That for me was more about not exp- exposing myself to synthetic chemical pesticides and herbicides and not exposing the land to it, I don't think I had made that full circle connection until we had already left the farm. Even though we were certified organic market farm, I just don't think I really fully grasped the importance of interplanting and having that biodiversity. Because on the farm, we grew organic produce that we sold here at two farmers markets in the Pittsburgh area I still used horticultural oil and some organic pesticides that are allowed under the National Organic Standards. I still use them. I didn't interplant the way I interplant now. I didn't quite grasp how amazingly helpful that can be.
0: When I think of companion planting, I think of things like deal with tomatoes or three sister plantings. Those type things come to mind. Are those folklore plantings or are those science-based methods?
1: That is a really good question, right? And that's something I wanted to figure out for myself too. And so when I started to dive into the research, the first studies I looked at were some of those sort of old school folklore based companion planting techniques because I wanted to find out if there was actually any research behind them. What I discovered was that, yes, yeah, some of them had research behind them and some of them definitely did not. And so that's where you have to do the job of educating yourself to separate the two. Are those old school ones going to be harmful to your plants? Definitely not. But are they going to be as helpful as ones that sort of have that research behind them? No, yeah, probably not. That's why it's good to sort of have a good guide like this. So you're not wasting your space and wasting your time when you're doing this it was kind of cool to see that some of them did have a basis in science, even though they weren't originally intended that way, that they actually really do. And the other thing I think that's important to mention really quickly is that what I discovered too, when I was reading all these papers is that the scientists actually don't use the words companion planting. Like They don't refer to this as companion planting. And I think because at its root, it still has that sort of like folklore and conjecture angle to it. And I think the scientists are a little afraid of that. They will use terms in instead like polyculture, interplanting, and intercropping. When I was looking up research, I found that if I used those words instead of the phrase companion planting, I came up with a lot more fact-based research on the technique, which actually are companion planting. It's the same thing. They just don't want to use those words.
0: Well, what would be an example of a total folklore companion planting with no science behind it?
1: You know how everybody always talks about marigolds? Got to plant marigolds everywhere because they keep all the pests away, right? Right. Well, I could find very few science-backed companion planting partnerships that used marigolds that were actually proven to be effective. For a long time, people were always like, oh, you got to plant marigolds because their smell is repelling to pests. What the research is showing that it's not actually the smell of the marigold or the smell of any plant, any companion plant that detracts the pests. What it does is that odor or the volatile chemicals that are released by the plant, what they do is actually mask the volatile odors, chemicals released by the host plant. So it hides the host plant. It's not that it's repelling them. It's that it's masking the host plant. That was a really interesting difference that I think is really kind of important for people to understand. The marigold research that I did find was one was partnering marigolds with onions or members of the onion family to deter onion root maggot flies. And that was proven. And the other one was marigolds with broccoli and other brassicas for cabbage root maggot flies to deter those. Those were the only two marigold-based studies that I was able to find that had science behind them.
0: There seems to be a lot of moving parts in companion plantings and in your book. Plant Partners Science-Based Companion Planning Strategies for Vegetable Gardens, you do an excellent job of clarifying how to minimize diseases, reduce pests, improve soil fertility, support pollination. As a new gardener or maybe a seasoned gardener that wants to get started and start applying the plant partnering techniques that you talk about, where do you actually start?
1: You could go one of two ways. The first way is that you could start employing actual specific partnerships that were studied and are featured in the book. So that could be something as simple as always planting nasturtiums in your summer squash field or crop or rows, however you plant them. So around your zucchini, basically, because that was shown to deter squash bugs. It can be simple, one partnership like that. Or you can approach it from the angle of not so interested in the specific partnerships. I'm more interested in the concept of increasing diversity and building that polyculture and just mixing everything up in my garden and stop planting in rows or blocks or big swaths of plants and instead in your raised bed, mix everything up together because we don't need to harvest by mechanical means like a farmer does. So we don't have to have our cabbages all in a row, right? You can have a cabbage in this raised bed and a cabbage over there in that raised bed and that's going to make it harder for the pests to find them. It is a form of companion planting, but it's not necessarily plant A with plant B. But either approach, I think, is a valid way to get started.
0: In your example of cabbage, one over here and one over there why is that a good thing?
1: There's this theory in the entomological community and research, and it's called the resource concentration hypothesis. This hypothesis is that if you have a whole bunch of the same plant planted together, that's the concentration, you've got a higher concentration of this host plant, say your cabbages, planted all together, what that says is that's like a big beacon for these pests to find that host plant, right? You've basically set out a ginormous welcome mat Mm -hmm. for them, right? It's easy for them to find. Whereas when you have one cabbage in this bed and one cabbage in this bed and one cabbage over here, you don't have that concentration. The resource is not concentrated into a single area and that makes it harder for the pests to hone in on a desired crop.
0: So you're camouflaging that plant among other plants.
1: Bingo, because these pests, they find the plants in one of two ways, sometimes combined. They find them visually, right? So they actually see their host plant and they find it that way, or they find their host plants through the volatile chemicals or odors that the host plant emits. And the plants emit many different compounds in the form of volatile chemicals that do all kinds of different things. But The pests that have co-evolved with them to use them as a host plant can really recognize them very easily and they pick up on them and that helps them hone in on that host plant. So if you have that host plant around a lot of other plants that are also producing a lot of different volatile chemicals and emitting them into the air, it's going to mess up the signal. It's going to not be the beacon that having a large concentration of the same plant is. That is a really great way to limit pest damage in the garden is to just mix it up.
0: Yeah, yeah. What about weed management strategies with companion planting?
1: The best way to do that is one of two ways. One is by using cover crops, which a lot of people think, why would I want to do those in my home garden? They're supposed to be for farmers. Cover crops, when they're done properly, can be extremely useful and helpful weed suppressors in the home garden. You can use them in the fallow season. You can use them as a living mulch during the actual growing season, where you're shielding the soil, you're crowding out weeds because you've got this living mulch underneath your plants. That's one way. And then the other way would be by using allelopathic plants. So there are certain plants that produce chemicals called allelochemicals from either their roots or from their shoot system. And these chemicals inhibit the growth of other plants. When we use them in the garden, they produce these compounds and that can prevent weed seed germination. It can be very, very useful. And one of the easiest ways to do this for gardeners that doesn't involve having to use a cover crop is cucumbers. Cucumbers produce a surprising amount of allelopathic chemicals, one of which is very highly studied. It's called cinnamic acid, and that is just one of the allelopathic chemicals that cucumbers produce. So if you grow cucumbers as a living mulch, say under your tomatoes or okra or taller plants, it can help suppress weed seed germination and lead to fewer weeds.
0: You got your cucumbers, but how about borers that like cucumbers? How do you then approach that?
1: Yeah. So that might be a case where you could also interplant some flowering herbs in and around that particular spot in the garden that are very attractive to some of perhaps the parasitic wasps that use those borers as a host to support their developing young. So we can have these different kinds of layers of companion plants in the garden that don't just improve soil or suppress weeds, but they also increase the natural predation and biocontrol that's in our garden, or maybe they attract pollinators, right? Like a lot of the partnerships do more more than one thing they have more than one benefit
0: that's really cool. It starts blowing my mind when I start hearing all of these connections and different approaches. There's biological controls in your book that you talk about. When I think biological controls, I always think of something that you're buying in a bottle or a bag to apply, but it's deeper than that. Could you explain how that works?
1: Biological control is basically a technique where you're using one living organism mm-hmm. to control the population of another living organism. In your garden, it might be the ladybugs eating the aphids or the the lacewing larva eating aphids or a parasitic wasp that lays its eggs in the back of that tomato hornworm, right? It's one living organism to control another. There's biocontrol, which is basically where you can buy insects from an insectary and release them into your garden. And that's really cool. If you're growing in a greenhouse or a high tunnel, it's a little less effective if it's outdoors where they can get eaten by birds or fly off or there's not enough pests to support them. So they go elsewhere. In my opinion, it's much better to create a garden environment that will support the native species of these good insects, these predatory and parasitoidal insects that live in your gardens. Again, creating that diverse polyculture in your vegetable garden can do that. It can support all of these thousands of species of good bugs that help us control the bat.
0: Now, do you go into detail in that in Plant Partners or is that covered more thoroughly in your newest book?
1: That's much more deeply in attracting beneficial bugs to your garden. There's one chapter in Plant Partners that is dedicated to biocontrol. It comes more from the point Of what are the plant partnerships that we would choose to support these good bugs? It doesn't necessarily introduce you to the insects and how they work, which is really cool stuff. There wasn't enough room in a book on companion planting for all of that. So instead, in Plant Partners, that biological control chapter is dedicated to what are the plants that you should put in your vegetable garden to help enhance this process and support these good bugs.
0: Okay, well, tell us about your newest book that you just have released.
1: Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. It actually came out as a first edition in 2014. So this is an updated and revised edition of the book. This one focuses on sort of how do we use these beneficial insects to help us manage and control pests and have us be a little bit less reliant on any product controls, any sprays, whether they're organic or otherwise. It introduces all of these different groups of beneficial insects, some of which you have millions of in your garden, but you've probably never met before because they're super tiny or you're not out there with a hand lens every day looking for them. It talks about how they work. It talks about how insects and plants kind of intersect and how they help each other. And then it talks again about what kind of plants you can include in your garden to support these insects. So they sort of complement each other, plant partners and attracting beneficial bugs. They build on each other and to sort of have that same science-based approach, which I think for me is really important in sharing gardening information that's science-based. So a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences between the two.
0: I look forward to explore that deeper in a later conversation. I'd like to get back how to suppress diseases that you talk about in plant partners.
1: Admittedly, this aspect, this benefit of companion planting is one of the ones that's really just emerging. There hasn't been a ton of studies done on disease. Suppression and using companion plants for it. Primarily, right now, what we have the research on is how cover crops and living mulches can help suppress diseases. If you think about tomatoes, and tomatoes are prone to a lot of soil borne fungal organisms that splash up onto the leaves when it rains. If you have a living mulch cover under that plant and over the soil, it sort of forms a protective barrier so that those spores can't be splashed up onto the lower leaves of the plant. So that's where a lot of the research and disease suppression comes from. And then, of course, obviously having that biodiversity that leads to overall general health of the soil, of your plants, that makes them more resistant to the common diseases in the garden. When they're healthier, they can better fend them off. Those kinds of interconnections is how we can help suppress diseases.
0: Could you go over some of the specific plant partnering that we could buy to our own gardens?
1: Sure. I have some favorites for sure that I include in my garden every year. I think one of the ones that I love is interplanting my lettuce with sweet alyssum. The main goal of those two plants partnering together is to enhance the biological control and predation of aphids because, as you know, aphids love to feast on lettuce. Sweet alyssum is very attractive to seraphid flies and some of the parasitic wasps that prey on aphids. Out West, in California, where they're growing huge fields of lettuce at organic farms out there, they actually have them interplanted by the rose with sweet alyssum, specifically because they want to have that nectar and pollen there for those beneficial insects that help control the aphids. So that's an easy one. And it's awfully pretty to include those in your garden. The other one that I love, which is also one of those ones that fits in the old school companion planting technique that actually has science behind it, and that is tomatoes with basil. That was an exciting one for me to see the research behind. What the research found was that if you interplant tall varieties of basil around your tomato plants, there was a reduced egg laying by the moths that create and form their larvae are uh, tobacco and tomato hornworms and also for armyworms on tomatoes. That was a used combination that people can employ. Another one was partnering dill with cold crops like broccoli and cabbage and kale They found that when those two plants were partnered together, there was a reduction in egg-laying behaviors by the imported cabbage worm. Those are some good, easy examples that people can start using today.
0: On the pest management side, I'm interested in when you were talking about trap cropping, could you explain what exactly that is?
1: Sure. So this is another way of partnering plants together, but instead of repelling a pest, we are actually basically planting a sacrificial crop that they like better than the one that we're hoping to harvest. And we're hoping that they go over there instead and they feed on that trap crop instead of feeding on the plants that you are hoping to harvest later in the season. So it's a technique that farmers use all the time. There's different kinds of trap cropping systems used on a farm scale, but in a backyard home scale. There's some really effective ways that we can do it. One that I always employ in my own garden is I always interplant my young tomato seedlings with radish because radish are extremely attractive to flea beetles. They're one of their favorite things to eat. I find that when I use them as a trap crop with my tomatoes, that they will feed on the radish and they will leave my tomato seedlings alone. You know, mature tomato plants, they can withstand flea beetle damage without a problem. But on really young seedlings, if you have a bad infestation of flea beetles, they really can set them back quite a bit. It's a plant partnership that works really well. That's an example where trap cropping is used interplanting. So the trap crop is planted right with the harvestable crop. There's also trap cropping that's periphery planting where you want the trap crop to be way over there, like 10, 20, 30 feet away. If you have a real big garden, away from the plant that you're trying to protect because you literally want to draw the pest way over there. An example of something like that could be blue Hubbard squash. Squash vine borers love Blue Hubbard squash. If we plant our Blue Hubbard squash over in one corner of the garden and then we plant the rest of our squash sort of elsewhere in the garden and we have a whole bunch of Blue Hubbard squash that's a big concentration of those plants, the squash vine borers are going to go lay their eggs on those and they're going to leave the rest of our squash hopefully alone. So we're using it as a trap crop for those squash vine borers. And then we can destroy those vines later in the growing season, dig out the borers and kill them so we don't have another generation next year those are some good ones with trap cropping there's lots of others i have a bunch of them in the book and i use them in my own garden even though my own garden isn't huge it's only 20 by 30 so it's not a big space but i found it to be very effective
0: you'll not want to miss more good gardening with jessica in just a moment you're invited to engage with us on instagram at the garden question podcast if you'd like to email me directly The address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. How do you measure success in plant partnering?
1: That is a really excellent question and I think it's a really personal answer. I think every person that does companion planting is going to have different goals in mind and therefore their measure of success is going to be a little bit different. For me, my measure of success is a really active garden. If I'm seeing things buzzing all over the place, I'm seeing a lot of pollinators, I'm seeing a lot of beneficial insects, I'm seeing my plants happy and healthy. Yeah, I want them to have some pests because if they don't have some pests, there's not going to be food there for the good bugs and the good bugs are not going to stick around. So I want tolerable levels of pest damage. I want to be able to make a good harvest. I want my crops to be successful. I think that's probably what I would consider the check mark <laughs> for, for whether or not the techniques are, are useful.
0: Is plant partnering only for food crops or can you take some of these same techniques on over into the ornamental world?
1: I personally think we should sprinkle them everywhere, <laughs> even in our lawns that you don't necessarily need to have just grass in your lawn areas. It should be a mixture of plants. So for me, any chance in any garden environment or wild space where there's a chance to enhance the biodiversity there, we should do it.
0: Have you lost any research in that area?
1: There's a ton that in that research, when we're talking about ornamental plants, they tend to talk use the phrase plant communities, Mm -hmm. where they talk about how plants in the wild, they don't all grow on the same level. They're layers of plants from our trees and our shrubs and our herbaceous perennials and our woody perennials and our ground covers, right? So we've got all these layers of plants. In natural plant communities, that's how plants grow. No plant is an island existing there all by itself, right? Mm. They have communities of other plants, communities of fungal organisms in their roots, communities of insects that live with them, of mammals and birds that live with them. Everything should be in a community. It shouldn't be standing there on its own in the middle of any garden or any forest, right? I think that's something that is a lot of in the research. And in my book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, one of the things that I do is I have these entomologist interviews scattered throughout the book. Some of them really do talk about the importance of creating complex plant communities in our landscapes, whether it's your foundation beds or an ornamental garden or perennial bed or a vegetable bed. There is a lot of research showing that the more diverse plants we have, the better and healthier the garden will be.
0: Yeah, thinking about that, that makes me kind of sad for those trees that are growing solo in the middle of the sidewalks and how they're not having any interaction with anybody else.
1: It is. We're forcing them to be in an island. And in a way, what's even sadder about that is that a lot of times when they're in concrete and asphalt like that, it's hard to develop the relationships with the fungal organisms in their roots that really are a major key to their success and their survival. Even though we can't see that relationship, it's such a super valuable one. Yeah,
0: I started hearing about that when I was doing my arborist certification you start hearing about those relationships. It's just a fascinating world to me.
1: It is. It's mind-blowing when you think about it. These trees can send signals to nearby trees. They can convey messages, alarm signals. They can say, you know, hey, I'm infested with aphids, so you better steal up your chemical defenses and your leaves because they might come over to you. Trees and other plants can also release volatile chemicals that serve as an alarm signal and serve as a call out, an SOS for beneficial insects. So if your tree is infested with aphids, that tree can release volatile chemicals that lure in ladybugs or parasitic wasps or other predators of aphids. Really, really amazing. And I think we only understand probably the tip of the iceberg of those interactions.
0: I agree with that. Now, you're researching the available scientific research, so what are the current questions you're trying to answer?
1: It's a really, really excellent question. No one no one has asked that before. I think my main goal in both of these books that are research-based is to unlock the scientific literature and make it accessible and connected to home gardeners. I think that's something that has been missing for a long time. They've known things in the entomological community for a very long time, like since the 80s, we've known that plants release volatile chemicals that can call in predators to prey on pests. Like We've known that since the 80s. Did you know that? in the 80s? I, I didn't know that in the 80s. To me, that seems like it's groundbreaking brand new information because it is to us gardeners. It isn't in the entomological community. My goal is to really pull this research together and put it all in one nice little neat package that gardeners can use to be better gardeners and better stewards of the land. Kind of a lofty goal. It stems solely from me being a giant nerd who loves to read these kinds of things and dig into this <laughs> research. That's probably the main goal of why I tackled these two books.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad that's your calling because it makes it easily digestible for people like me.
1: Well, good. Then I can check that box off, which is nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would you like to know that nobody is researching or studying at this point?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, so... They might be studying it and I just don't know it because they haven't published their study yet or maybe I didn't dig far enough to come up with their study yet. But I would like to know probably more about chemical messaging that plants do and which ones do it and in which way they do it. Because some of the research that I read is just jaw-dropping. The exact composition of the volatile chemical that they will release a cabbage plant is being eaten by a caterpillar and it releases a, what's called a semiochemical, which is that volatile chemical I talked about. It's called a HIPV, herbivore induced plant volatile. The plant gets eaten. It releases this message or chemical signal into the air. And the exact composition of that signal depends on which species of caterpillar is eating the cabbage. Is it a cabbage looper? or a diamondback moth, or an imported cabbage worm. And the composition of that is different. The reason it's different is because they want to attract the specific species of parasitic wasp that's going to use that specific species of caterpillar to raise their developing young. So I want to know, am I messing that up? When I go out into my garden and I used a dryer sheet or I don't use perfume, but let's say I used perfume and I'm introducing other odors into the air, am I messing up that chemical signal? How far does that chemical signal go? Is it only an inch away from the plant? Is it three miles away from that plant? How does the bug pick up on that? And how am I as a human potentially impacting that? Like, How can I step out of that process more and take myself out of the equation? And I would like, to know that.
0: And not throw static and interference in that signal.
1: Yeah, because it's something that Mother Nature evolved for a long time. I don't want to be negatively impacting that in any way if I can help it.
0: That's absolutely amazing that even goes on. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or a landscape?
1: I kind of wish they would have the same light bulb moment that I had, which is that gardens aren't just for us. They aren't just for humans. They're really more for all the other little critters that live out there. And that's their home. Our homes are not in the garden. Millions of creatures do make a home in the garden. I wish people would start choosing plants that serve somebody else besides themselves. I wish they would stop using products, synthetic products in particular, but even natural products, because I really don't think there's a need for them. And I wish they would chill. I wish gardeners would just chill out and stop panicking. You see some Japanese beetles on your roses? Don't freak out. It's okay. Guess what? They're not going to kill that plant. They're going to make it look not so good for the rest of this season, but that rose is going to come back next year and it's going to be just fine. So instead of spraying that rose with pesticides, maybe grow a plant that Japanese beetles don't like to eat. Cover the rose with row cover for two weeks while the Japanese beetles are really bad. Find better ways to do things and just relax a little bit and let mother nature have her chance to do her work.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: Shelling peas. (laughs) (laughs) My mom had a big vegetable garden in the back of our house and we did not have a lot of money at all. And so most of what we ate, was what my mom grew in the garden or what my dad got hunting or fishing. She was big into canning and preserving. We just, for hours, we sit on our back patio shelling peas, my sister and I and my mom. And I hated it at the time, of course, as a little kid. But looking back now... I think about the conversations we had. Occasionally, my mom would let us throw peas at each other, which was kind of fun. So I have fond memories of it now. But at the time, I wasn't too keen on it.
0: Yeah, do you have a sore thumbs in doing that?
1: Yes, definitely a sore thumb. Although with little hands, and maybe that's why my mom got my sister and I to do it because we had smaller hands. And so <laughs> she 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 has arthritis now, and I'm beginning to wonder if maybe that's why <laughs> too, much- <laughs> too much pea yeah. shelling. <laughs>
0: Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession?
1: It's interesting. You know, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania. Really small. When we got our first stoplight in the middle of town, we had a parade because it was that (laughs) exciting. So really small town. And at the edge of town was a greenhouse and a flower shop that my mom used to take me to when I was a kid. And we'd buy the tomato plants and the marigolds and the petunias for the window box in the front of the house. And I used to love going in there. I loved how it smelled. I loved how everything looked. From the time I was really little, I would tell my mom that someday I was going to get a job there. And she would just be like, "Okay, whatever, because she knew how I felt about (laughs) shelling peas or doing weeding or anything like that. So I'm sure she thought, well, there's no way. And then when I turned 15, I went and got my working papers and I went to the flower shop and I applied and I got a job. And I worked in the flower shop first and then I made a mistake on something and, and I got quote unquote demoted to the greenhouse, which turned out to be the best thing that ever happened in my whole life because it's really where I found a home. Then when I was like a junior in high school, talking to everybody's like, what are you going to do to college? What are you going to go to a job for? And I was like, oh, I want to be a teacher. And my dad said, well, maybe you should go into horticulture. And I was like, what's that? He said, it's plants, like the science of growing plants, which is what you do at work every day. And you really seem to like it. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know it was a job I could have. And then I was like, yeah, I think I want to do that. And that's what I did.
0: What is your funniest garden story?
1: Oh my gosh, funniest. Oh, there's the poop incident. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This was just a few years ago, actually. We have like a shade garden on the side of the patio underneath these big tulip poplar trees. And there's a low free stack stone wall that goes across the front of the bed that I built a couple of years ago. It's maybe like, I don't know, 18 inches tall. And I went out there one day to work in the garden and... On top of my perennial geranium, which kind of came out over the top of that retaining wall, was the biggest pile of poop I had ever seen in my life. Like huge, like something you would find at the zoo. And I was like, No. Our entire yard is fenced in. There would be no dogs. And it would have to been like, I don't know, an Irish wolfhound or some huge gigantic dog to make this gigantic poop. And I have no idea where this poop is coming from, what this is, right? And then a few days later, we find two more big piles of poop up by our strawberry patch in the back. And I'm thinking, we live in suburbia, right? So I'm like, is like somebody coming into my garden pooping? But this would have had to be a big person too. So the next day, my husband sends me a tweet from our local news station It is a news clip of our next door neighbor being interviewed on the news about her dogs were freaking out at two o'clock in the morning and she turned on the back porch light and there was a bear in her backyard eating out of her bird feeder. Oh, boy. Yeah. So we had a bear leaving poop in in our garden it obviously they can climb over the fence and would come into the yard it was like the mystery poop the neighbor was funny because she was like i'm worried about the kids going to the bus stop but she never called us to tell us about the bear we saw it on twitter like (laughs) so i'd say that's probably like the weirdest the weirdest thing that ever happened in the garden is the poop incident yeah
0: yeah Yeah, well, did you compost it?
1: No, we didn't actually. You know, it eventually just kind of dissipated. I wasn't touching it because I'm like, I don't know, it'd be some funky parasites or something in that. So I'm just going to leave that be. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're a tremendous garden communicator. You had your own radio program. You've got a blog. You write books. What led you to become a garden communicator?
1: Sort of happened by accident, actually. Way back when I was in my early 20s, I was running a landscape company. My husband had a friend who was a producer on a local environmental radio show, and they were looking for someone to do some short little monthly segments on organic gardening. This was before we had our farm or anything. The guy that was doing it said, hey, do you think your wife might be interested in this with her background in horticulture? I said, sure. And so I started doing three-minute segments once a month on that show. I really liked it and I really enjoyed it. Out of that came the big radio show, which I had for 15 years with a co-host. It just sort of snowballed from there. With the radio show, we had a really good audience. Then a book publisher contacted us to see if we wanted to do a book. So that was the first book that I wrote. And that was like right when my son was an infant. I started the radio show when I was like seven months pregnant with my son, who's now 16 going on 17. It was kind of like one thing came to the next and just sort of led me on that journey.
0: Quite a journey. I was observing from afar.
1: Yeah, it's been a fun one. It's been good. I I stopped the radio maybe two years ago when I took on a job with a publishing company where I get to make fabulous gardening books with other authors. It's just been such a tremendous gift to be able to do this. And so I kind of gave up a lot of my freelancing things to take that on. And it's been wonderful. It's just sort of like another step in the journey, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. What are the hot topics in publishing
1: now? Right now, we have a huge influx of vegetable gardeners in particular with the pandemic. I think there was research that said like 38 million new gardeners started the year of the pandemic and 80% of them plan to continue. Big influx of new vegetable gardeners and they're young. You know, you wouldn't think they would look to books for information. You'd think they would look to the internet. What they're looking to is these great voices that are out there. There now, young voices that are just like them that learn the same way that they're learning, bringing them in for books. And it's been a lot of fun and they're doing really well. They've got some interesting and cool messages to share. They're approachable, which is really great. In the editing process, we can make sure all the science is right and everything is accurate and all the information that they're giving. It's cool. Not just vegetable gardening. I think a lot of topics about urban gardening, because people are really small space gardening nowadays in city environments. That's really specialized and the ways that you have to grow and the things that you have to think about. A lot of interest in that as well. And anything with the natural world, like any connection to how to support the other organisms and pollinators in our garden and native plants, all of those topics continue to be really well-received.
0: The younger gardeners are rediscovering what books are about, I guess.
1: They are, but it, it feels like to me, like it's the specific kind of book that they're looking for. They're looking for a book by someone that's like them, that they can relate to, that had the same journey, is them, that maybe looks like them, that ask the same questions that they're asking. You know, they want to learn through that other person's journey rather than necessarily learning through a hardcore garden information presented in a really sort of textbooky way, which I think is interesting too.
0: Yeah, And you're the translator in that. You're translating from the techie way to the experienced way.
1: Well, thanks. That's a huge compliment. I kind of want it to be that way and hope that it's that way. So I'm glad to hear you say that.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I
1: think it's changed over the years. I think, obviously, when I had that first job in the greenhouse, the people that I worked for were a big influence, Um, simply for the really what i thought was mind-blowing things that they were teaching me which looking back now i'm like okay that's not really that mind-blowing but at the time like a fact that you could take a cutting from a plant and stick it in dirt and it would make a new plant like that blew my mind as a 15 year old i couldn't believe it i couldn't <laughs> believe it I was like he's having me do this as like a way to fill up my time this is not going to be successful at all and the next thing you know they were growing and then they turned into this big beautiful hanging basket so that for like the learning part of it was a big influence now i would say it's probably my biggest Business partners at Savvy Gardening because they push me and we push each other to really be our best and to step into some new things. With Savvy Gardening, we've had to learn about things like SEO and how to design a website. And now we're venturing into online classes. So it's been setting up that platform and, and video editing and all of that stuff, pushing you into things that you didn't necessarily think were a part of horticulture because in horticulture, you only think about the plant. All of this as part of modern career in horticulture, they've been wonderful. It's a two-way street there. From them, they learn from me and we we make a great team.
0: You've taught us a little bit about Savvy Gardening. How do you find that online and what would you be coming there for as a gardener?
1: Sure. So the website is actually Savvy Gardening, S-A-V-V-Y gardening.com. There is another website called Savvy Gardener, but it's Nebraska Garden Center or something like that. So it's Savvy Gardening. You can come there for anything. We have articles on every topic and they are big articles like 1,000, 2,000, sometimes 3,000 words extensive articles on topics from house plants to pest control to how to cure onions to how to design a pollinator garden and everything in between. The website has tabs across the top where you can drop down menus and you can see different articles and different topics that we cover. It's totally free. We do have ads on the site, obviously, because we don't want to work for free, but we don't want you to have to pay for that information. You know, you might have to look at an ad, but you have to look at an ad in a newspaper or a magazine too. We've been doing it since 2014, so quite a while now. And There's a lot of great information. We're just getting started launching these online courses, which are going to be a lot of fun. It's a great way for people to learn on their own time. They're on demand. You can watch them whenever you want. Visual as well. It's nice to have that visual aspect to the learning.
0: What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture?
1: A lot of the new things that I'm learning nowadays are about bugs, and they're not about horticulture. Because I've sort of taken a keen interest in entomology, I'm looking at how bugs connect with plants doing most of my learning nowadays in that world instead of in the horticulture world.
0: Well, they're they're interrelated though, wouldn't you think?
1: They totally are. Yes. And they're so dynamic. I love plants and I always will love plants, but they're kind of static. And I know don't just sit there, right? They do an amazing things in the world, right? For sure. I think because I just don't have a lifetime of experience with bugs, it's all still so darn jaw-dropping for me. Yeah, I think that's why right now I'm more focused on that.
0: A new exciting world for you.
1: It really is. It's a whole new world, to quote Disney.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are you applying to your garden this year that you learned from last year?
1: I want to say harlequin bugs. We never had them before in Pennsylvania. They're like typically a Southern pest. They are pests of the cole family or brassicas mm-hmm. and they're extremely destructive. They're a member of the stink bug family. They have nymphs and the adults and they both have these like piercing, sucking mouth parts and they can be quite damaging. We call them harlequin bugs because they kind of got this orange and black and white coloration pattern to them. Never had them in my garden before. Saw my first one three years ago and then a couple more the year after that. And then last year I had a lot of them. So I'm thinking I'm going to have to do a little bit of research and do some interplanting and intercropping to really find some ways to manage them because otherwise I'm going to have a big problem. And they don't belong here. And I think it's like a climate change thing and warmer temperatures and the geographic range is shifting. A lot of them are moving northwards. You know, lucky us up here in Pennsylvania. Leaf-footed bugs, same thing. Never had problem with leaf-footed bugs until about three years ago. Now they're all over the tomatoes every year.
0: You haven't had the cold weather that you normally have, though, have you, in the last couple of winters?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, last year we did. Last year we had some good prolonged cold temperatures, so that was good. Um This winter, off and on, we didn't really have any solid, like, a whole week of minus 20 or anything like that, which is what I really like to have uh to get rid of a lot of those, you know, bugs that are more southern and used to warmer temperatures. Um, we haven't had a whole lot of that. In the winter, I I definitely feel like it's shorter than it used to be, even 10, 15 years ago. You know, we don't have the prolonged, long, cold winter that we used to have. And so that is definitely a part of it. And it's it's not just impacting pests, but also, you know, the good bugs and pollinators and our plants as well. So all that is interconnected.
0: I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have.
1: A lot of fun. I really do. I don't have a lot of extra time with all the work that I do and having a family at home and all of that stuff. I will make the time to sit in my garden on the dirt, crisscross applesauce and watch. And that's one of my favorite things to do in the garden. And I think it's so fun to see who's showing up to pollinate the oregano flowers and who is creepy crawling around underneath the tomato plants. What can I observe in the garden? It's one of my favorite things to do. I really in enjoy it. And I am the kind of person that if there's a lot of weeds around, not only am I pulling the weeds, but I'm also looking at what's in the dirt after I pull up the weeds. Who's crawling around in there? What are they doing? As I'm working, I'm also observing. And I think that's really fun.
0: What are your future plans for your garden?
1: I was going to say I want it to be a lot bigger, but then I'm like, maybe I don't. Kind of waffle back and forth between wanting this big, giant, productive, beautiful garden and having something that's just super manageable so that we can go kayaking on the weekends. And I'm no different. I think about that a lot. I would like to have raised beds right now. My garden is in ground and it's sort of like a little kitchen garden, 20 by 30. So it's not real huge. It's got pretty pathways and a bird bath at the center, like it's a pretty garden. I feel like raised beds as I'm getting a little older would make life easier and make tending the garden a little bit more manageable. So I think about that. Last year, we put in a new native planting, like a new naturalistic planting that's probably, I'm going to say, like maybe 40 by 20. It's a pretty big space with some serviceberry bushes in there and a lot of native flowering perennials. I think I might need to add some more matrix plants to that, like some Carrick species closer to the ground so I don't have to worry about weeds and all that stuff. So that's sort of one of my missions for this year too.
0: What's your most favorite plant?
1: The plant that's the most fun to observe for who else it brings in is definitely mountain mint, pycnanthemum, muticum in particular. I love to watch that plant because you see like the funkiest wasps, the non-stinging kind, coolest native bees, and just an excellent plant to observe talking about, one that I like the looks of the best, I might say acanthus, bear's breeches because it's like this tall, striking plant that the deer don't touch and the rabbit don't touch, and it's about as low care as you can get, and the flowers last a really long time, and it's unusual. Everybody asks about it that comes to the garden. Any of the asclepius, any of the milkweeds, I love those too, and I love them because they always get infested with aphids. And I would like to call aphids a gift to gardeners, because if you didn't have the aphids, you wouldn't have all these amazing predatory insects that show up to help control other pests aphids don't really cause that much damage to plants they're never going to kill a plant they're there as part of the food chain for the good bugs asclepius always gets infested with them and so that's a great place to watch the ladybugs gosh i'm a nerd i'm such a nerd i'm sorry
0: one of the plants that you like for the pure joy of it
1: like i don't garden just for me anymore always thinking about who else that plant is going to serve if you made me pick one i might pick one as the, a cut flower yeah where the the true enjoyment is only for me when i take it inside uh-huh. and th- that's probably the oriental lilies
0: now what is your most valuable garden mistake
1: most valuable garden mistake hmm This is going to sound weird, but I don't think that they're mistakes. I think they're just like lessons that I learned that things didn't necessarily work out the way that I wanted them to work out, but it wasn't the end of the world. It goes back to that, like, just chill out as a gardener because things will write themselves the following year.
0: Jessica, tell us the best way people may connect with you.
1: Social media, I think, is probably the best way, as I think it is for most people nowadays. I'm on Facebook as Jessica Walliser, Twitter, Instagram, and they can also visit the website SavvyGardening.com, and there's a contact page there. They can contact me that way as well.
0: This has been Episode 50, Companion Planning That Works with Jessica Walliser. Thank you, Jessica. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.